This is an ABC podcast. Just a warning before we start. This episode contains some strong language and intense material. One night in 2006, Nicola Gobbo crossed another line. She'd just dobbed in her client, friend and confidant, who we're calling Lamb Chop. I had been encouraged to be closer and closer to him. And then, of course, the minute, you know, as a hypothetical, if he is arrested, of course, the first person he'll ring is me. As in, he'd ring, expecting she'd meet him at the police station for legal advice. And he'd be suspicious if she didn't show up. So Nicola planned to be there. Her police handlers panicked. Lambchop couldn't get legal advice from the very same person who'd dobbed him in. Nicola had a clear conflict of interest. They considered deactivating her, or even arresting her, their best informer. But subservience is not Nicola's strong suit. She was walking into that police station no matter what. So the night of Lambchop's arrest, police relented. There was an operational decision to allow 3838 to walk in and speak with that individual. Yeah. Uh, was it the greatest decision? Probably not. Was it made for good sound reason? Absolutely it was. Officer Black told the Royal Commission they had no choice. Like everything in this whole messy saga, seemingly unfathomable decisions have a lot to do with simple survival. If she didn't walk into that room, she was going to get killed. Because we might as well bought her a T-shirt to let her know that everyone in the world that she's a human source and they would have killed her. That was primarily one of the main reasons why that decision was made. It wasn't corrupt. Uh, Yeah, yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, maybe it wasn't the greatest decision. Yeah, maybe we should have got some legal advice. But at the end of the day, we didn't. We weren't acting corruptly and we're doing the best we possibly could with the sanctioning of Victoria Police and Victoria Police Command. So they allowed Nicola to walk into the police station that night. When she got to the interview room, she found that Lambchop had been keeping his mouth shut. After every question, like a broken record, he'd been telling the police, I exercise my right to remain silent. But after Nicola arrived, it was a different story. He burst into tears, grabbed my arm in front of those guys and said, I'm in so much trouble... In this tape, she tells her handlers that Lambchop burst into tears, blubbered that he was in so much trouble. The Royal Commission heard that after his chat with Nicola, he decided to cooperate with police. And you agree that he needed a bit of a push? Yeah. And uh, do you accept the proposition that he was pushed uh, over the line during the course of this discussion? Yes, but whether that be because I was there and, and saying to him... I'll still talk to you, I'll still support you, I'm not going to, you know, I know that it's going to create problems for me, but don't worry about it. Yep. Or whether it's because of being in the room and all that pressure being put on him. Yeah, he got a bit of a push, but um, from a combination of things. And he was not going to get an independent lawyer if you turned up uh, and advised him? No, he was, he was certainly going to get all his options, but I wasn't going to reveal what I'd done. And... And that it came to a head that night because it was a um, it was a it was an awful night. Do you accept night. that you were an uh, in effect an agent of the police and not an independent uh, legal practitioner providing him with legal advice? Yes, I accept I was an agent of the police. 
Nicola did feel bad about betraying her friend. But later that night, one police officer remembers Nicola making a comment that he thought was odd. She said, Who's next? This is season two of Trace, The Informer. I'm Rachel Brown. By the middle of the 2000s, Victoria Police was starting to win the war against Melbourne's underworld drug kingpins. The rate of gangland murders was slowing as more offenders were put behind bars awaiting trial. And Nicola Gobbo was winning too, high on the idea that she was their top informer. It became a running joke here, top of the ladder now, best informer ever, no one will ever beat you. In the space of a few years, Nicola would dish the dirt on Melbourne's criminal underworld, and she would even take on the Calabrian Mafia. That kind of power and adrenaline can be addictive. But if Nicola thought she was the puppet master, pulling all the strings, she had a surprise coming. Knowing what I know now about their tactics and about, obviously, what happened as time went on, and, you know, I got played. This is episode five, The Glittering Prize. One night in May 2007, in the year after Lamb Chop was arrested, Nicola's handlers ferried her to a secret location. I can remember not telling me where we were going. She'd just finished having a drink, a flaming Lamborghini cocktail, with clients from the criminal underworld. Now she jumped in her police handler's car to switch over to her other life. As a thank you for all her informing, they drove her an hour out of Melbourne to a private golf and country club for a special dinner. Nicola had been fishing for something like this. She couldn't brag publicly about her secret role, obviously. But Nicola was ambitious and liked being the centre of attention. And she did want recognition for her pivotal role in police breakthroughs. Where it become a joke about getting a plaque and if you had a plaque, where could you put it? Because you couldn't put it anywhere because someone might see it. So the next best thing was this dinner and a present. The head of the gangland task force, Piranha, presented its star informer with a silver pen. I didn't need the pen. It was, the, it was never about the, the item or a monetary value. It was symbolic, and that's the, that was the point of it. I want to point out this gesture. It was nice, but it was risky. You've got highly covert informer handlers and the head of the gangland task force all dining with their star informer. If anyone saw them together, it could mean the end of their big secret. For them, it was a big thing to do. It was a big move, but it was important for the police that Nicola felt valued. It had been a big year since Lamb Chop's arrest. The night Lamb Chop was arrested, when Nicola said, who's next? She says she was joking, that she meant it sarcastically. But Nicola did settle comfortably into informing. She'd pick up information almost too easily because her clients felt so comfortable with her. Yeah, I, was, I, I basically was, became like a piece of furniture in the room and people spoke openly in front of me. People started telling her about murders, abductions. She'd pass on whispers about drug labs, pill presses and importations. Criminals would even ask her for advice. But I would ask her if she knew somebody who could buy um, large quantities of MDMA. I mean, that's a stupid question to ask of a lawyer. 
on the team, but they obviously trusted her. To the horror of her handlers, she grew more brazen, at one point even phoning in a report of her evening with the drug trafficker from a restaurant toilet. The comment that springs immediately to mind when you bring this up is she couldn't help herself. And because she was giving it her all, she expected that from her handlers too. Nothing is good enough unless it meets her high expectations and all those around her should be the same. Whoever didn't meet her standards, she wrote off as a muppet. No, I remember a, a, a nickname of Kermit. She called you Kermit? I think she called all of us Kermit. Nicola might have been hard work for the police, but her informing was proving to be exactly the secret weapon they'd hoped it'd be. And around this time in 2007, police had another huge victory. The shock, guilty plea and conviction of Carl Williams. In a move that effectively solves the mystery of the city's underworld war, 36-year-old Carl Williams has admitted that he ordered three of the shootings. Josie Taylor has been covering the gangland killings and she joins me now. Well, Mark, Carl Williams today, in a move that has shocked many, has pleaded guilty to the high-profile murder of Jason Moran, who was gunned down in Pasco Vale on the 21st of June. I was in court that day with Josie for the guilty plea. No one was expecting it. Police were elated. Carl Williams was there. Now, people would remember him as sort of the chubby, blonde um, man who made many, many media appearances throughout the gangland killing. Always extremely confident, an air of untouchability about him. Well, that is why this is so significant, Mark, because he's always maintained his innocence. So for him to turn around and, and admit for the first time his involvement is just hugely significant. Carl had finally given in because he was backed into a corner. Not many knew it then. But it was Nicola Gobbo who'd helped her clients, two of Carl's associates, to make statements against him. Carl would have got life in jail, but because of his guilty plea, Justice Betty King sentenced him to a minimum of 35 years. You were indeed the puppet master deciding and controlling whether people lived or died. You are a killer, and a cowardly one who employed others to do the actual killing whilst you hid behind carefully constructed alibis. In part thanks to Nicola's work, Melbourne's underworld empires were crumbling. So he's going to jail, Mockbell is on the run. Is, is that the lot as far as the Mr Biggs are concerned? That pretty much was the end. And just weeks later, Tony Mockbell was caught after a year on the run. He was arrested in an Athens cafe, wearing an ill-fitting toupee as a disguise. One of Australia's most wanted, the Melbourne fugitive Tony Mockbell, has been taken into custody in Greece. Mockbell would be extradited back to Australia and jailed. This would have been another logical time for Nicola Gobbo to walk away from the complicated mess she'd waded into. The crew she'd felt trapped by as a young lawyer was disintegrating. Tony Mockbell and Carl Williams had been convicted. In fact, Handlers say they wanted her to walk away. They say they'd put her in what's called babysitting mode, essentially a holding pattern, while they worked out how best to extricate her. She was coming up to two years as an informer, and she'd become less cautious, like a war correspondent, I guess. Danger becomes commonplace. So as one of her handlers, Sandy White, told the Royal Commission, they were trying to wean her off informing, but they were trying to do it gently. 
we couldn't just cut her off. What, what would have happened in the past, before the source unit and all the new policy back then, is uh, the police were very, what's the word, maybe cavalier in relation to informers. They would use an informer for what they, or we would use an informer for what we could get, and then once we've got that, we would cut them loose and never have anything more to do with them. And the idea with the SDU was that we would make sure that we recognised and accepted that duty of care. So we were going to have to continue to have a relationship with her. Thing is, while they continued that relationship, Nicola kept giving them gold. She was addicted to being at the centre of everything. And Victoria Police was addicted to her information. She would then come up with something that we felt we couldn't ignore, which would then start it off again. Like an intriguing tip-off about a massive drug shipment. A large illicit import was coming into the country. While she was defending a client for the then world's biggest ecstasy haul, she stumbled onto evidence of an even bigger importation on the way. Her client was Rob Caram, an alleged go-to guy in the shipping industry for drug imports. She'd dine with him and pick up all sorts of things. What she found out was taken down by handlers and tended to a 2017 Supreme Court trial. Rob Caram booked dinner under the name Robbie Rockstar. She told handlers Caram fancied her and trusted her. Caram mentioned that there is a container on the way. 3838 asked, what's in it? Reply. This one has much more than the last one. After that said, I can't believe I just told you that. And jokingly patted 3838 down for devices. One winter morning, she was on her way to the county court to defend Caram when a maid of his passed her an envelope for him. That person didn't want to take it to court with him in case he ended up in custody. When I got the document, it was in an envelope and it wasn't until I opened it um, and translated it that I thought I realised the significance of it. The Royal Commission's heard the document was written in Italian, which Nicola knew a bit of. It was a bill of lading, which is basically like a shipping receipt that details your cargo and where it's going. In her lunch break, Nicola photocopied the bill of lading for her handlers. There was talk, certainly pills, and apparently three times bigger than the import he was on trial for that day. But her handler's first reaction wasn't elation. It was fear. Then they were worried that I was going to get arrested by the federal police. Her handlers worried there might be other eyes on Karam and his crew. Different groups of cops like federal authorities, who had no idea that Nicola was a police informer, if they caught on to the importation and found Nicola Gobbo with the bill of lading in her hot little hands, she could be arrested for being an accessory. So what seems like treachery on face value, she says, was survival. And her handlers agree, she had no choice but to hand over the incriminating paperwork. Handing over the bill of lading to the police... Uh, Ms Gobbo was essentially acting as an agent of the police and not of Mr Caram. Uh, that's, uh, at that point in time, she had a choice of either, I guess, being knowing, knowingly concerned with a four and a half tonne import or handing it to the police. Yes, that's, that's the dilemma I believe she had at that point in time. I understand. She either had to join, join the gang or, or work against them. So she worked against them. She continued to feed information from Rob Caram back to her handlers. At one of her dinners with him, he dropped a nugget of gold that would lead police to one of the most valuable targets imaginable, the local arm of the Calabrian Mafia. 
you know, I didn't know when I was simply repeating, you know, one a few words from a, a conversation over a dinner that it that it was as useful as what it turned out to be. Karim said it was to meet the Italian boys from Griffith. Human Source asked uh, Rob if this had to do with the container, told yes. A comment by Nicola Gobbo about the Griffith boys was the first time police realised the New South Wales chapter of the Calabrian Mafia was behind the smuggling operation. The police set up a sting and it played out beautifully. In June 2007, the shipment of tomato tins from Naples, Italy, filled with 15 million ecstasy tablets, was seized on the docks in Melbourne. Federal police then put the syndicate members under surveillance and listened in as they panicked about their missing shipment. Eventually, more than 30 people were arrested. And not just the underlings that these busts usually snare. Cops got the big guys this time. This syndicate is alleged to be involved in something in the order of 60% of importations coming into southeast Australia. On the face of it, Nicola's work with the police was a runaway success. But two years into her secret life as an informer, the shine had begun to wear off. There were three big things that had been worrying Nicola, and they were all coming to a head. Firstly, she was concerned that the relationship with her handlers was lopsided. Secondly, the ethical and legal problems were getting out of control. And lastly, she was increasingly concerned that her secret was leaking out. So let me take you through them. Concern number one, the lopsided relationship. Nicola felt she was giving more than she was getting. She wasn't getting paid for informing. In fact, she moaned to her handlers her informer role was costing her millions in lost time and lost client fees. But more important than money for her was feeling like part of the team. Nicola would tell her handlers almost everything, but when she'd fish for updates on particular cases, they'd give her nothing. Well, I guess she figured she was providing all the information and it was a one-way street. She probably felt that she'd done more than her fair share and these seemingly small items, like not telling her little bits of information, obviously made her think that she she was trusting us with um, her actions, but we weren't trusting her, even on the little things. She remained an outsider which upset her because she felt like she was the one taking all the risks. And that brings in big concern number two, the growing ethical and legal problems. I'm going to spend some time on this one because it's going to become very important to Nicola's story. Nicola knew that if her role was ever made public, she could be accused of violating the rules and ethics of her profession. As you've already heard, this is one of the big questions that's being picked over by the Royal Commission. Did Nicola breach her duties as a lawyer? And did her handlers encourage it? As you've already heard, information passed from a client to their lawyer is generally supposed to stay secret. It's protected by what's called legal professional privilege, LPP for short. But there can be some exceptions. Take the tomato tins case, for example, the one that saw Australian mafia figures caught. In that case... Nicola and her handlers decided it was okay for her to pass on intel about her client Rob Carum. They decided that it wasn't covered by LPP because it was about a future crime, separate from the one she was already defending him for. 
No, well, my understanding at the time was that information about ongoing crimes or future planned crimes would not be considered part of LPP. Nicola has explained it to me pretty much the same way. If she's your lawyer, any matters that fall outside the case you've hired her for, anything to do with you or your mates, is not privileged and is fair game. An analogy for you is if you came to me and you were charged with murder and you sought my advice in relation to um, how best to achieve the best outcome for yourself and in the course of talking to me you told me all about your mate uh, Bob who had um, guns hidden in his house for an armed robbery that he was about to commit. Um, Anything you tell me about your murder charge is subject to privilege and the privilege is yours. But anything you tell me about Bob and his guns and his armed robbery is not privileged. It can't be. So these kind of exceptions were used to justify Nicola passing on information. But Nicola has admitted that trying to sift intel for her handlers was tricky. She was recorded saying it was getting too hard to tell just half the story. So, quote, I may as well just forget the fact that there's privilege and just say all of it. The handlers have told the Royal Commission they didn't ask for privileged information and if some happened to slip out, they say they did their best not to pass it on to investigators. But if you put all of that aside, there's a bigger issue here. Lawyers have a basic duty to work in the interests of their clients. It's pretty clear that sometimes Nicola wasn't doing that. As soon as she informed on Rob Carum, she should have stopped acting for him. I should not have even spoken to Mr Carum, but once again I had the same problem of I've spent day and night chasing this guy and then how am I going to get away from him without him thinking that I'd done something to him? She says she couldn't just walk away from him without blowing her cover. It was the same deal with Lamb Chop. She kept advising her clients on the trouble she'd landed them in to keep herself looking clean. In my mind, my greatest concern was that if I um, said anything, it would highlight or reveal what I had done and the fact that I'd lied to all of them behind their backs by omission or directly um, meant that I'd potentially be killed by them. But even at the time, Nicola and her handlers were worried that her informing could backfire because of her conflicts of interest. They were worried that convictions could be overturned, that clients could argue they didn't get a fair defence. Do I take it that um, it was apparent to you that your handlers were aware uh, that what you were doing, uh, that is representing people in relation to whom you provided information, was wrong? Yes, it was spoken about um, at length numerous times. There was the potential for that case, for those proceedings, to be perverted. Or to, to be um, overturned, yes. This was a, this, you're right, this, is a, this was a topic of conversation from day one. It's a basic tenet of our legal system that everyone deserves a fair trial. Remove that cornerstone and the whole thing becomes meaningless. But some police officers seem to think, well, if they're criminals anyway, they don't have much right to complain about their lawyer having a secret agenda. Sandy White was asked how he'd feel if his lawyer betrayed him while pretending to act in his interests. His reply? I don't think a person importing four and a half tonnes of MDMA is in much of a position to be too upset about that. 
Council assisting the Commission, Andrew Woods, also quizzed handler Peter Smith about this. What I was asking you, though, is whether or not, in your view, a person who is a client of Ms Gobbo's, who has had Ms Gobbo A, representing them, whilst B, at the same time, working against their interests, would feel that they have been fairly dealt with by the justice system? Um, well, if they hadn't been involved in criminal activity, it wouldn't matter. If they hadn't been involved in criminal activity, it wouldn't matter. At this point, Nicola Gobbo's lawyer laughed and rubbed his eyes, as if he was thinking, well, I've heard everything now. For some police, the need to secure convictions clearly overrode concerns about Nicola's conflict of interest. But to be fair to these handlers, they were operating without any proper legal advice, because as you've already heard, the force decided that it wouldn't even consult its own lawyers about Nicola. And what the handlers were doing, for the most part, had the clear support and encouragement of force command. Victoria Police was desperate to end the gangland war, even if that meant pushing the limits of what was acceptable. Whatever Nicola and the police say about this now, in the taped conversations with her handlers, you can hear that she was freaking out about it back then. I've chucked ethics out the window, I've chucked legal professional privilege out the window, I've chucked my career out the window if any of this ever came out. Um, forget about it. I wouldn't even be covered by insurance. I would be so fucked, it's not funny. She knew that her career would be gone if her cover was blown. And she knew that her life might be in danger. Which brings me to the third and biggest of Nicola's growing concerns about informing. Her fear of being exposed. Her secret had started to trickle through Victoria Police. Normal cops weren't supposed to know who she was, but somehow word was leaking out. Unless it's strictly controlled, um, people talk. But it should have been strictly controlled, shouldn't it? It was strictly controlled, but coppers still talk on the grapevine and other things all the time. It happens. This refreshing witness at the Royal Commission, Terry Purton, is retired now, and he did not stick to the party line. It was common knowledge that person was the human source. So cops knew, and Crims were starting to sniff something was amiss too. Nicola got mysterious phone calls. One anonymous voice said, you need to keep that informing dog mouth shut, slut. Keep your mouth shut or die, said another one. And once there was just barking down the phone line. Then one night, while she was out for dinner at a South Melbourne restaurant. Her car was firebombed. Was her secret out? It was only later she'd learn it was the handiwork of a disgruntled client. Nothing to do with her informing. But if a pissed-off client would do that, what would a criminal do if they were betrayed by their own lawyer? The threats kept coming. She was posted a sympathy card with two bullets inside. The card read... One for the heart, one for the head. And there was worse. You got a text, you need to get raped first, then pissed on, then kicked in the effing head, and then shot and splattered. That's just one from a series that yeah. day. I, I think this um, some of them did, Rachel. Some of those, like the, the time that a stuffed toy animal that happened to be a dog was found near my mother's home, 
I didn't think that was a coincidence, but that was more fearful because that was my poor mother. Maybe it was just a child left it there and it was completely blown out of proportion, or maybe not. There were so many signs that Nicola Gobbo needed to get the hell out. The woman that a deputy commissioner once referred to as a glittering prize had become a dangerous liability for the force. Meanwhile, Nicola was stressed because of her work with the handlers, but on the other hand, talking to them was the only thing that made her feel better. She says that talking to us helped. That, that's a bit of a thing too where, where she said that a few times, as I recall. When, uh, when talking about stress levels and stuff like that, and we say, well, you know, we'll end the relationships with me. Oh, but the only thing that's helping me is, you know, talking to you guys. But just like a bad boyfriend, you can't seek comfort in the very same person who's hurting you. This toxic relationship needed to end, but no one called it a day. They blame each other for that. That was her personality. She would give her best all the time. And, um, you know, even... Even when we're saying it's time to end the relationship, time to move on, Um, she's still driven by, well, I haven't finished that or um, I can still do this. Nicola will tell you her handlers were always hungry for more intel. You know, there was no end date. The police just got more and more. um, They would say that I wanted to keep going, but they were, you know, they just kept moving the goalposts. There must have been at least some little bit of a thrill about being part of that world. You know, instead of being a pawn in the cartel, you were almost a queen on the chessboard that was helping put people behind bars. Was any of it exciting for you? I wouldn't say exciting um, or even fulfilling, but it was it was more um, more akin to a situation where I felt that I had to prove my worth all the time, and that if I didn't, then they would. Um, effectively throw me to the wolves because if I didn't keep being of value to them and became valueless, then they wouldn't look after me. She says she felt trapped. She'd been trading in secrets for so long and if that currency dried up, she worried police would have no use for her and would quit protecting her. It seems with Nicola, this pattern of fear and dependence has repeated. First with her gangland clients, then with police. So I found myself having sought some kind of intervention assistance from an organisation that I thought would help me and protect me. That morphed into a situation where I, over time, became not just not just frightened of them, but I felt like my life um, and my life as I knew it was dependent upon them. Do you take any responsibility for for any of it? I've I've read bits in Handler's Diaries that suggest that there were times that Handler's wanted to back off, they thought things were too dangerous and and you sensed that... um, you sensed that pulling away, so you gave more, you pushed more. You know, is that, is that something inherent in you that you so desperately needed or wanted to be needed? Um, they, the police, had this hold over me, which is, you know, put me in a room with them and I feel like I've got to prove myself. 
it's almost like they would they would challenge me by saying we don't really believe that or are you sure and that would knowing my personality which is well if you give me a challenge I'll rise to it I think they did manipulate me in that way because they knew me very well in other words Nicola sort of admits that she willingly maybe even enthusiastically kept informing but she says she did this because of her fears and insecurities And she says Victoria Police would have known all about those fears and insecurities. And she accuses the force of knowingly exploiting them. Victoria Police, you know, in a way manipulated me or stood back and allowed me to be or helped me be manipulated into that position. I'm not saying I don't bear some responsibility at all. That's not... I don't want to come across as saying that. But I think... um, you know, knowing what I know now about their tactics and about, obviously, what happened as time went on. And, you know, I got played. Even the treats she looks back on bitterly now. Like the gift of the stinking pen, as she now calls it, and the golf club dinner. Yep, what an awful night that was. Didn't eat anything and barely drank. I don't think I drank anything. And then I got a, and then I got a, I got a silver pen. You know, watch them all get pissed and thinking, what, it's just insane. There's a kind of pattern in Nicola's thinking here that's played out a few times at the Royal Commission. Nicola would say that the police had asked her to do something or threatened her. You said that... uh on the 13th of June this year to the Commissioner that you were petrified of Mr White and he threatened to burn you if you didn't trust him. All right? Remember saying that? Yes. But then, when pressed, she'd sometimes admit it was more a vibe. She'd claim that they manipulated her to feel threatened or to feel like she had to prove herself. One of the clearest examples of this came when Nicola was talking about Sandy White, the handler she was closest to, In the space of a day at the Royal Commission, she initially said that she was scared of him after their first meeting. Initially, walked away petrified of of Mr White uh, and to a lesser degree of Mr Smith. But then she changed that slightly. She wasn't so much scared of him as scared about her future. I walked away scared um, or scared of what might happen if I didn't meet their expectations. And then later at the Royal Commission, she settled on saying that she was scared of just letting him down. Look, it's a bit embarrassing to admit, but I think my biggest fear of Mr White was um, disappointing him. She not only sought his approval, she trusted him. Trusted him to keep his word. But he'd secretly recorded their very first meeting when he said he wouldn't. And when she was at rock bottom, he referred her to a psychologist. He said that it was an operational health and welfare issue and that he needed to satisfy his bosses, that I was travelling okay, I guess is the best way to put it. But Nicola found out the psychologist wasn't just there to help her. But fundamentally the problem was that she was reporting back to my handlers. She also discovered that one of the senior officers who considered visiting her in hospital after her stroke, thinking she might be vulnerable for recruitment, was Sandy White. 
Victoria Police hierarchy decided that it was appropriate to visit me when I was in the high dependency unit in hospital, um, unable to speak after my stroke on the 24th of July 2004, to pressure me to become an informer. They didn't end up doing it, but they thought about it. The man she'd looked up to as a father figure had thought about it, and for Nicola, that was disgusting enough. And I just, I mean, what do you say to that? It's, um, that's cold. Sandy White was genuinely worried about Nicola. She'd lost 49 kilograms since she started working with the police. She was under a lot of stress and that impacted on her physically. Yes. There were times she would report that she couldn't sleep and she was grinding her teeth. As her health worsened, the handler's notes describe how the usually chatty Nicola had gone deadly quiet. She was depressed, finding it hard to get off the couch and using too much morphine to control the facial pain she'd been left with after her stroke. When Miss Gobbo made that fateful decision on 16 September 2005 to provide information to the police in this way, it it was a total catastrophe from Miss Gobbo's point of view. That's definitely how it's turned out, yes. With the benefit of hindsight... uh, There's a number of reasons why this relationship shouldn't have been embarked upon, at least without much better support. Nicola provided intel on 164 people over the course of almost four years. No other informer had been on the books for that long. By the end of 2008, she was at rock bottom. She probably should have been in hospital. But instead, Force Command pushed her to do one last job. In the next episode, police get Nicola to secretly record a conversation with an old flame. A detective who was a police suspect in the infamous Hodson murders. If you think that there's something I'm hiding about any of this, my um, response was fine. Well, record it. You record it and I will. Season 2 of Trace, The Informer, is hosted by me, Rachel Brown. My reporting partner is Josie Taylor. Supervising producer for post-production is Tim Roxborough. Our producer is Yasmin Parry. Producer for the 7.30 interview was Chris Gillette. Camera, photos and sound on that interview by Greg Nelson. We get production support from Will Ockenden. Fact-checking and research by Alexander Tai. And our sound design and theme composition was done by Martin Peralta. Additional music by Seapelt. Nicole Carroll, Land Systems, Lincoln J.K. Webber, Jay Curtis, R. Domain, and Martin Peralta. If you like Trace, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they land. 